My name is Shredda and this is The Leitner Side of Things, Practitioner Perspectives in School Psychology, a place for school psychology practitioners to come together and share experiences and insights about their work. So today I'm talking with Dr. Kelsey Reed. Hi, Kelsey. Hi, Shredda. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm so excited to be able to talk to you today. Um, and there's so much that I want to talk to you about. So just to start, tell us a little bit about yourself, about your career journey. Yeah, sure. So um, I am a first year school psychologist at Prince George's County Public Schools in Maryland. Um, I went to Loyola University Chicago for grad school. So I and I, I started in the specialist level program because I was at the time, I guess, most interested in being a practitioner. Um, but a year into the program and after joining a research team, I discovered my love and passion for research. And um, I think one thing I really loved about my program in particular is that it was very social justice oriented. So most, if not all of the research teams or I guess research opportunities we're looking at issues related to education inequities or social justice. And I think it just kind of like ignited this passion within me. So after I saw that side, I knew I wanted to go for my PhD so I could kind of continue being involved in that type of work. So, um, yeah, so I just recently graduated last spring and right around the time when COVID first hit. And um, then I started my first job as a new practitioner last fall. So yeah, that's that's my short journey. <laughs> so it's an interesting journey. Um, how is it's got to be strange to be in your first year entering the field as a practitioner after graduating, but have have COVID and some of the social unrest that's been going on, mm-hmm. all of that occurring at the same time. So how has your year been so far? Yeah, it's definitely been unconventional. (laughs) So um, my district has been completely virtual. So obviously no grad program can prepare you for starting as a first year school psychologist in the middle of a pandemic during virtual learning. (laughs) So, you know, I've I've been doing my best and it's a large district. So there are a ton of psychs um, and we've all been pretty supportive of each other. I think the the part that I'm enjoying the or I guess learning to enjoy the most about being virtual is um, so for the longest time and we're, we're still not doing assessments and evaluations for students in special education. It's kind of been on hold. So I think it's really allowed us as psychs to kind of do more or be more involved in like the social emotional learning, you know, MTSS kind of. Those, those things that we don't necessarily always have the time to do that we want to sure. do. So, so I think I've, I'm trying to make the best out of it in that way and um, kind of seeing what that means for us when we return after, you know, our principals and other staff have seen us in these roles. Like, I, I don't know if maybe this will pave the way for, for a change. And I mean, maybe I'm being optimistic because I know our cases are just lining up and racking up. I'm going to be super busy once we go back. But but yeah, that's kind of what it's been like. Um, obviously not. It's been challenging, but I think I'm, I'm working through it and finding the, the positives. Awesome. Yeah. And kudos to you and everyone who's just entering the field and the, the time that we're in. I can't imagine what that would have been like. Yeah, thank you. 
So I want to talk a little bit about your dissertation work on deficit thinking. Can you talk a little bit about that and just give um, kind of an overview? Yeah, sure. So um, yeah, my dissertation was on deficit thinking, but it was it was more broadly on exclusionary discipline and racial disparities in exclusionary discipline. And I think um, so the deficit thinking piece really came in during so I had two phases of my dissertation and the second phase involved administering a questionnaire to teachers. So I, I did that. I administered the questionnaire to about 300 teachers from six different school districts in a state. And um, these school districts all had different, you know, discipline data patterns. So there was some school districts that had very high exclusionary discipline patterns. So they've been ex um, suspending and expelling a lot of students. Another district or two had low discipline patterns, so they're not suspending a ton of students. Um, another district had high racial disparities, so they were suspending a lot of a lot more black and brown students compared to white students. And then there were also some districts that had no disparities. So um, my goal was to you know have differences in the district, the larger discipline district data patterns, <laughs> to um, to kind of compare and contrast teacher responses to the questionnaire. And so the deficit thinking piece kind of came into play um, in that questionnaire, how, how it worked was I um, asked teachers to imagine a student that they've worked with um, in the past who was displaying or engaging in disruptive behavior. And I left that very vague, very, I did not define disruptive behavior. I wanted to keep it to kind of, I guess, like kind of get those biases out. I wanted I wanted them to be biased in this, you know, because that's right. kind of where you get the real life. I want to hear the real raw thoughts that you have um, and what perceptions come to mind when you think of disruption. So um, so that was kind of just imagine that student. And then um, to to kind of so there are th just three questions, but the question that focused on deficit thinking asked them to basically um, write down what they thought to be the root cause of that disruptive behavior. And I tell you, I so I was expecting, you know, maybe to see like patterns, like maybe the high exclusionary discipline schools would have a lot of deficit thinking and the lower exclusionary schools wouldn't have as much. You know, I was kind of right. thinking there. Right. You, I just I thought that that would be the pattern. But it was like the majority. I think it was like 86 percent of all of the teachers, regardless of district, were saying things, you know, um, they, they were basically, they, they um, were engaging in that deficit thinking. So they were saying things like, um, you know, it's because of their family background. Um, it's because there's lack of structure at home. They don't have any parental support. Um, they, they're spoiled, you know, they're not getting attention. It was, it was just all this blame. And I was, I was just fascinated because I, I think that oftentimes that is kind of, you know, what we think. And I think, you know, it's like that for many reasons. So anyway, so basically that wasn't even the, the purpose of my dissertation. But once I got that finding, I kind of went down this route in this rabbit hole, I guess, of deficit thinking and how that just manifests through how all schools, regardless of, you know, if it's a good school, if it's, you know, quote unquote, bad school or whatever. Um, it right. just and what that means, that was that was the, the, the main, I guess, finding that I found regarding deficit thinking. And in your article, you had said that our schools are breeding grounds for deficit thinking. Mm -hmm. Is that what you meant? That it's basically everywhere, regardless of suspension rates, regardless of um, which school it is. It's mm -hmm. just everywhere, that type of 
thought pattern. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I meant. And I think I, I also meant that because if there's ever, you know, if there are students in a school who are not excelling or not, you know, performing as we, as, as we adults, we staff members expect them to, there's blame. And the blame often goes to the student or to the family member. So I think just as an institution, it's really difficult for educators, and I'm not blaming them. I know you're know, talking about deficit thinking. I don't, I don't mean to put blame on anyone else, but I think we we often were like, well, there's nowhere to put the blame, so the blame goes on the students. So I just, yeah, I think that's super, super fascinating. I mean, in a bad way, I guess. It's kind of how can we um, how can we change that because it is kind of embedded in the system. Absolutely, and. You're right. It is very fascinating. It sort of makes me think that people, I think oftentimes in a school, people, the staff members feel helpless sometimes yeah. um, because of many reasons. could be limited resources or limited support mm -hmm. um, or limited knowledge or experience mm -hmm. with different interventions. Exactly. Um, but I wonder if that plays a part in it. Oh, 100%. I think a lot of the times it's truly it comes out of frustration. So, you know, teachers and school staff, we're putting in so much work to support students and, you know, be the, you know, do what we can. And when those things don't work, our mind goes to, it goes to this place that ultimately just kind of leaves us powerless. Like, it's like, I've done all I can do. And so it, it's not me, you know, it has to be them. And that's just kind of, I think it's a coping strategy, kind of. I mean, you know, and so it's up to us, well, I guess it's up to all of us to kind of try to figure out how to reframe that. Because I think when we do reframe it, and if we can reframe it, we'll notice that like it brings more power back into us and it brings more control back into us. And it can ultimately help the students more than kind of that mindset of there's nothing I can do. You know, and that's so that's kind of where I am trying, where I'm kind of going. You know, like I said, I'm a first year practitioner. So I'm always thinking, okay, so how, what can I do with this, I guess, knowledge or information that I've kind of gained from my dissertation? And how can I move it forward to, to kind of build on it to make it mean something to make it change something. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. Hmm. So how do we reframe it? How can practitioners help? Yeah. And that's the big question, right? <laughs> and I think the for me, I I think like um, the the best thing that we can do, I guess, as school psychologists, is that we so we we have so many opportunities to do this because oftentimes we're asked to consult with teachers who have concerns about students, or we're meeting with teams to discuss parental concerns about students um, and obviously going through the, the IEP and eligibility process. But I think at every single step of that, there is a chance for us to reframe something that is said if it is said in a way that blames a student. And so mm -hmm. I, I like to model the behavior that I am not a person that you can, um, can talk like can talk to like that, you know, like if I'm around a teacher and um, some they say something along the lines of like, you know, this 
this um, this parent just doesn't care about their kid's education because they never come to our meetings. You know, that's just, I think I, I kind of hear that one a lot or something along those lines. I, um, I think just a really good basic starting point is to not entertain that, you know? So, um, mm-hmm. of, you know, I'm not going to say, oh yeah, I agree. I'm going to say, oh, well maybe, you know, they're, maybe they're working. Maybe they, you know, I like to, operate under the assumption that all parents want what's best for their kid. So I kind of, I think that just provides a starting ground, first of all, that makes it known that um, that that's not an approach that I'm going to take as a practitioner. And, um, you know, however that's perceived by, by staff members is what it is. But I think that just starts it off in that way. Um, and then from there, it's kind of like, always bringing the conversation back to what's in our control, you know, obviously validating feelings, validating feelings over validating assumptions. Um, And, and yeah, just reframing to what's in our control to the best of our abilities. And it is hard. Like I, as a first year, especially, I I struggle with it um, because teachers, you know, I'm one of the youngest staff in the building. So it's kind of like, who's going to take me seriously? Like they're looking at me like, well, what do you know? (laughs) You know? So I think it is really challenging, but it starts with one person. And I think the more you practice it, um, and the more you talk about it with people, like why it is that you're saying these things and why it is that this is the way you think, I think people understand, you know, they don't, nobody wants to blame families. And when you point it out to them, you know, teachers don't want to be, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. It's not a mindset that teachers are proud of. So, so I think it's, it's just opening the door to that conversation. You talk about deficit thinking being a social justice issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so why is it a social justice issue? Yeah, I think um, I view it as a social justice issue because we know historically that teachers and school staff and everyone in society is more likely to kind of engage in that deficit thinking when working with students from historically marginalized groups. So, you know, you're more likely to find yourself in this cycle of blame when you're working with a student who's black or brown. And also that extends to to other to other social groups. So especially with our students with disabilities, And so what makes it a social justice issue is when that deficit thinking occurs more likely when you're with certain groups of certain subgroups of the population and that deficit thinking also paves the way for um, for it, for education inequities. So for different outcomes for the students that happen to be targeted from that deficit thinking. So I think it's all connected, but that's kind of, why I view it as a social justice issue. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, it, it does seem that, and you've talked about this as well, you, know, you said that our understanding of students' needs is a reflection of how our society thinks about community needs. Mm-hmm. And that really made me think about what role can we as practitioners take to sort of bridge that gap? Because we can change and reframe our thinking and our words in the school environment, but our kids are still going home into that community or going out into that community and still exposed to that type of thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So I wonder what role can practitioners take to help administrators or school leaders shift their thinking so that we can make a larger influence, influence the larger school or district culture? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And I, you know, I wish I had the answers. I, I think <laughs> that there, once again, there's only so much that's in our control. So I like to think, you know, what can I, what impact can I make as an individual? And how are, are there ways that I can extend that impact by joining discussions with people from the community, with, you know, teams at school? How can I find the people that are willing to do this work, that are invested in this work, and how can I kind of collaborate with them to have these discussions because that's kind of where it starts. And so I, you know, I wish I had more of an answer. I really do think though that you can make an impact as an individual person. And um, it just involves like, for example, um, I, I've always tried even when I was in living in Illinois, when I was in grad school and now to be involved in different community organizations to kind of the work that that's being done, you know, especially within the legal side and policy work, because it's all connected and making change at the policy level impacts our practices. So kind of being involved in those conversations. And I think that's where our perspective is really valuable because, you know, we have that on the ground day to day experience of how difficult and challenging it is to break that deficit thinking cycle. Um, And so you know, kind of using our perspective to help with those changes being made at the policy level so they can actually be effective. You know, that's, um, I think that's another example, but just they're absolutely, it's all connected, I think, you know, and I think the anything you can do to kind of, you know, share your wealth and have these conversations going with, with people that, you know, work in different areas or just other community members is the best way to just get this started. I do want to talk a little bit more about policy um, in a minute, but before we get to that, I wanted to mention your Instagram page that you uh, created. You are the creator of Sassy for Social Justice, which is a wonderful page where you put out content that addresses so many facets of social justice, including historical information, um, information about allyship, Latinx issues, self-care, and so much more. Um, And your content really touches on not just educating others, but providing very practical tips. So I, I wanted to ask about the intersection between social justice and school psychology. In what ways do you think social justice education should be embedded into school psychology training? Because I, I think it's sort of a given that it should be embedded into the training. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the two things are very much connected and interrelated, but in what ways do you think that would be the most beneficial for um, future school psychologists? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, like you're right. I think they are so connected and it's so important. You can't talk about one without the other, especially with how diverse our our country and our schools are becoming. Um, and I do, I feel very grateful and lucky that, like I mentioned earlier, my university um, 
my grad school university did try to incorporate social justice into our training program as much as they could. I think there's always room for improvement, um, you know, but I think, you know, some of the conversations, these difficult conversations need to be held in grad school before we all get to the point where you're faced with a situation where you're either perpetuating oppression or, you know, contributing to a system that is not working for certain students. And so I think like, you know, one of that, one of those topics would be the lack of racial diversity in our profession. It needs to be talked about. It's uncomfortable, but it needs to be talked about. I think um, another thing, and I want to do a post on this, but the ways in which our profession, so the profession of psychology, contributed to racism and eugenics in its founding and how that truly has shaped the way our families of color view us when we're sitting in a meeting room with them talking about administering a cognitive assessment. You know, we need to be having those conversations in grad school about how to handle a situation like that without further, you know, without in doing any further harm, you know, on families as we're just trying to do our job. It's, there's so many, it's all connected. And then obviously kind of the area that I'm super passionate about, but the ways in which our profession and schools and the education system in general contributes to racial inequities. And this obviously involves um, suspension, which is my area, but more directly to our work would be overqualifying students of color um, or more specifically black students for emotional disability, intellectual disability, or specific learning disability. So I think that is how these factors directly relate to social justice. And I think every program needs to be having these conversations. And I know they're not. Um, I think I'm, I'm biased and I kind of live in my own little bubble of assuming that school psychs, you know, have that background or, you know, they understand those things, but it's not, I'm learning more and more that that's not the case, um, which is really, it's really disheartening. Let's talk more about policy, because I know that's something you're very interested in. It's something that really fascinates me as well. Why should school psychologists be informed and engaged in policy issues? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, my interest in policy stems from the direct connection that policy decisions have on our work and on the students we serve. So I guess to kind of back up where I initially became interested in policy was um, in grad school. I had learned from a, prof a professor that, um, you know, one of my grad school professors that there was a new Senate bill being introduced in our state that was going to limit the use of suspension and expulsions in schools. And I was kind of like, oh, that's really fascinating. You know, how's that going to play out? What are all the components involved in that? How is you know, or is there training involved? You know, what are the different pieces that make that policy that happen, you know, at the practice level? Like, what does that look like on the ground, you know? And so that's when I kind of started becoming involved in those conversations and um, learning about the different dynamics. And it just was so fascinating to me how, you know, practice and policy need to play hand in hand in order for something that happens at the top to actually be effective at the ground or, you know, vice versa. We have grassroots initiatives happening at the ground, 
that are being led by student advocates and parents and community members. And they need to be working with people that are doing the policy, you know? So I think I just, it was like an aha moment of how those two pieces really need to go hand in hand. And so um, I, there are so many things that are always happening, you know, at the policy level that I think we don't even have any idea they're happening. Like right now in Maryland, there are a ton and across the country, I, I'm sure there are a ton of police re- police free schools initiatives happening, you know, because of the the um, just all of the protests and the heightened attention to, you know, police brutality. And so that's another like amazing example of of why school psychologists need to be involved in that and in those discussions and kind of shedding light on the the role that we could play, you know, mental health professionals if, you know, we had the funding instead of police officers. So, you know, I think it it always just it's it's all interconnected and there's always something good in the works. I I like to think once again, optimistic first year psych. Um, There's always something, you know, positive and proactive in the works that could make a difference if we if we knew about it, if we advocated for it, if we call our um, our officials and let them know that we you know, that this is something that would benefit us um, as psychs and benefit the students. I always feel like sometimes we are so focused on serving sort of the individual student, Mm -hmm. that individual level, that we forget that we have power at the systems level. Mm -hmm. And not just um, within our school building or within our district, but at our state level, um, even at the federal level, we do have power um, and that we can use that in many different ways and advocate in many different ways. but I think we forget that as school psychologists. And that's another thing I do wish um, grad programs focused on a little bit more. I'm not sure how many training programs do focus on it now, um, but from what I could tell, um, seems like maybe there could be more of an emphasis on policy and how school psychs can be more involved in advocating at that level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. And I I was so lucky because that opportunity where my professor was involved in policy initiatives, it just kind of happened for me that there was some kind, there was a collaboration between the law school and the School of Education, kind of looking at that ed policy piece. But yeah, my actual program did not talk about that at all. And I learned about the NASP Public Policy Institute, which they do every summer on my own. That I think is another way, but I don't think people know about that. I don't know how that's even advertised for like grad students to know that they could attend that. Yeah, that's a good point. On your page, again, Sassy for Social Justice, you have some content on voter suppression and on election day self-care um, that was posted you know, back on election day or before election day. Why did you choose those topics? Yeah, I, um, I chose, I really liked my, my voter suppression piece. So thanks for, for asking about that. I think um, kind of like I've been saying all along, I really do think that everything in society is interconnected. So, um, you know, I, with voter suppression, you know, for example, um, I think that if we think about schools as a mini representation of our larger society, um, you know, that means that 
people, um, I'm trying to think how to word this. That means that people of color, people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds and people with prior criminal records are unable to vote or have a difficult time voting you know, what does that mean about our children and our students? What are they learning about how much value they bring to society if they belong to one of those groups? And with the prior criminal record piece, I think, you know, that piece is similar to kind of the way we view misbehavior in schools. You know, so, you know, if a kid acts out, we take away something from them. They're not allowed to go on the school field trip or something like that. You know, like that's what I mean about how it's interconnected. We see these same patterns happening in our school that mimic what we do in society. But anyway, so it's kind of like students see that happening. So how can we as educators tell them that they matter and will make a difference in the world when they're going home and hearing that mom's vote got purged and didn't count in the election? Or, you know, so that that's kind of the big picture of it. But then I also think that for, we know that historically the reasons why the votes of people of color were and are suppressed is because, you know, the people at the top and the people in control want to maintain that power. And they maintain that power by keeping white upper class people in charge of the rules. And when we have more, we have people that are more representative of our population going out and voting, we know that the votes are going to help our kids. You know, we're going to have votes that are more representative of what we need out of our education system. You know, we're going to have we're not going to have a secretary of education in office who's against public schools, you know. So I think it's right. I think like it connects in two ways. Like once again, it's a it's a it mimics our in schools. We mimic what's happening in our larger society. But also that is a huge issue that will ultimately impact our students in so many ways because of the different people that are going to be in power within the education policy world and making decisions that either, you know, take away all of the school-based mental health professional funding and then we can't do our jobs and kids don't have the support they need. So, you know, I think that's a huge issue that I, I am glad that I was able to shed light on just because it makes such a difference, you know, in what kids are seeing and how they are, um, the supports that they receive because of it. Yeah, that's really interesting. I actually did not think about it in that way. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm glad that you talked about that. Thanks. So lastly, as we kind of reflect on the past year, what have your thoughts been on how you practice as a school psychologist? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And I think that if anything, and I know this is cliche and so many people are saying this, but I really do think it's true that this year, of you know the pandemic plus the the social unrest and and everything you mentioned it all just shines a light on what's important and what things need to take a backseat you know so i think when it comes to school we really do need to be doing more for our students mental health we need to be fostering those social emotional learning skills like those need to take precedence over you know, academic regression. And I think I've seen a lot this year that, you know, students, or I'm sorry, not students, families and teachers have concerns about their kids not, you know, they're, um, they're struggling with their academics. And I find, you know, I'm just more focused on 
if they're surviving, you know, emotionally, how are they coping? You know, it's, you can't, we can't expect students to continue thriving academically with everything going on around them. You know, that needs to take first place. So I think I, I'm hopeful that, you know, I think, um, so my district just re-announced our reopening plans. And so um, I don't know what that's going to look like, but there has been an emphasis on mental health, um, the mental health needs of students. So I don't know what that would look like in practice um, or what changes may be made. But I do hope that seeing all of these things that are happening and everything that our kids have been exposed to in these past, I guess, you know, year and a half now, um, that that will pave the way for us to just reconsider what's important. You know, we're sitting in eligibility meetings and we're out of compliance on a bunch of cases because that's just what's happening right now. But like, are the kids okay? You know, how are they, how are they, been, how are they doing? How are they coping? You know, I think that has been my biggest takeaway is just um, kind of thinking about the functioning of students in a different way. So less pressure to, to you know, excel and thrive and get straight A's and all of that and more on just, you know, what do you need? What, what, what can we do? You're not attending school. OK, are you OK? You know, so I don't know. It's it's been an eye opening year in. Um, and I hope that we can use this year as an example to of what things are important, what we should be really focusing on when it comes to supporting our students. On that note, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Um, I really appreciate it and I appreciate your expertise and you bringing your work and knowledge and experience um, to this podcast. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to The Leitner Side of Things. If you have any feedback or topic ideas, let me know on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at S-G-E-R-A-9-9. See you at the next episode.